beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we may rejoice in the glorious gospel message concerning the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though it's not quite Christmas yet, we may reflect on how the Lord Jesus came into this world. What we need to understand is that the Son of God existed long before he came in human flesh. Along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. Yet at a certain point in time, a little more than 2,000 years ago, Christ was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. Matthew tells us how these things came to be. When dealing with Matthew's gospel, it's important to note that he wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew's goal was to show the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, how God was fulfilling his promises of sending the promised Messiah in Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew traced Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham and to David. God had promised Abraham In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God promised David that his offspring would sit on his throne forever, that he would establish his kingdom eternally. For the Jews to be convinced that Jesus was truly the Messiah, he had to be a descendant of Abraham. He had to be from the house and the lineage of David. Yet, there's a problem with Matthew's genealogy. Consider the last part of the genealogy in the time after the deportation to Babylon. We get, <coughs> we get a listing of names. So-and-so was the father of such-and-such, the father of the next name, and so on. Eliad, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. But then, unexpectedly, something changes. Matthew does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Instead, he says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. Properly speaking, Joseph is not listed as the father of Jesus. It's suggested, but not specified. Instead, Joseph is listed as the husband of Mary, and then Matthew adds, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. We easily read over that and think little of it. But for the Jews in the time of Christ, this would have stood out as being something extraordinary. And so in the verses that follow, Matthew gives a further explanation about the origins of Jesus and of how he can properly be counted as a descendant of Abraham and as the son of David. In our text, Matthew explains how Jesus was not born in the normal way through the sexual union of a man and a woman. God sends an angel to Joseph to make known to him that the child Mary was expecting was not conceived in sin. God had performed a wondrous work 
causing Mary, who was still a virgin, to conceive a son through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. The Lord sends an angel to Joseph to explain Jesus' virgin birth. We'll see that Jesus is God's actual son and Joseph's adopted son. Matthew begins our text by stating, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word translated birth is the same word that Matthew 1 verse 1 translates as genealogy. The Greek word is genesis. It can be translated as origin, birth, or genealogy. Properly speaking, the focus of our text is not on Jesus' birth, but on his conception. Matthew has already made it clear that although Jesus is listed as part of Joseph's lineage, there was something different about his conception and birth. Thus, Matthew seeks to further explain Jesus' origins in our text. Matthew goes on to make clear that Joseph is not Jesus' natural father. He writes, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. The closest that we have to that today is that a couple is engaged to be married. Yet a betrothal in Israel was a stronger bond than an engagement is today. A betrothal involved two families in a formal contract. That contract was as binding as marriage itself. In ancient Israel, there were different stages to a betrothal. First, parents would normally arrange a marriage between their children. Next, the couple entered into an official state of betrothal. Often, this involved an exchange of gifts. The groom's family would give a bride price to the bride's family to compensate for the loss of their daughter. Next, the bride's father would give a dowry to the betrothed couple helping them financially so they could start a family. Often the bridegroom would also give the bride a gift as his symbol of his commitment to the relationship. Because a betrothal was a binding contract, the couple to be married were often considered to be husband and wife. Note that in our text, Joseph is called Mary's husband. Yet because they were not yet married, sexual relations were not tolerated, the girl did not leave her family to live with the man. Joseph and Mary were betrothed, but not married. They were not living together. They did not sleep together. Yet the bond between them was so binding, it could not be dissolved except through divorce. Then something happens. Our text says, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We know from Luke's gospel that after the angel Gabriel approached Mary, she went to stay with her cousin Elizabeth for about three months. By the time she gets back to Nazareth, she's in the fourth month of her pregnancy. She may have begun to show. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about the type of conversation Joseph and Mary had. 
What our text says is that Mary was found to be with child. We need to understand, beloved, that for more than 400 years, God had not revealed himself to his people in any kind of special way. There were no dreams or visions or prophecies. Now imagine Mary telling Joseph about seeing an angel and how the baby in her room came about by the Holy Spirit. You can just imagine Joseph thinking, yeah, right. The following verses make it clear that Joseph thought that Mary had slept with some other guy. He's not willing to go ahead with their marriage. Instead, he resolved to divorce her. Now, our text mentions that Joseph was a just man. The word just can also be translated righteous. It's clear that Joseph was someone who sought to do God's will in his life. He knew God's law and was respected as someone who lived his life in accordance with it. Joseph would have avoided eating unclean food. He didn't mix with the wrong kinds of people. He didn't do his work as a carpenter on the Sabbath day in order to make a little extra money. Joseph was a righteous man. That was his identity. Everyone would have known him as such. But now this righteous man has a problem. The young woman he wanted to marry was pregnant. And Joseph didn't know who the father was. He knew it wasn't him. He was a righteous man and he wanted a righteous wife. If Mary had been unfaithful to him before they were even married, what kind of woman was she? And what kind of marriage would they have? Joseph also knew that in a small town like Nazareth, the word would get out pretty fast. And so he faced a very difficult situation. Basically, as Joseph saw it, he had two options. The first was to publicly call off the marriage. To do that, he would have to go into the village square and announce what had happened to the elders and to explain why he was breaking off the betrothal. The result was that Mary would be seen as an adulteress. She'd be publicly scorned and humiliated. The law of Moses prescribed that the elders of the city were to bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, that the men of the city were to stone her to death. That was the punishment for this type of sin. Now, it's not certain that this sort of punishment was still applied during the time when Israel was under Roman rule. Yet at the very least... A public trial would bring great shame on Mary. She would forever be seen as a sinner in her community. No man would ever consider marrying her. She'd be ostracized. Her family would be disgraced. But Joseph would keep his good name. Joseph also had a second option. It was to divorce Mary quietly. Our text says that Joseph was a righteous man, that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He didn't want to make a public spectacle of Mary. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. 
Deuteronomy 24 states that if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he was allowed to write her a certificate of divorce. This was interpreted in different ways in New Testament times. One school of the Pharisees taught that you could only divorce your wife because of unchastity. Yet another school of the Pharisees taught you could divorce your wife for any reason, like the fact that she burnt your supper, or because you found someone that you preferred over her. Given the fact that divorce laws in Israel were pretty loose, people would imagine all kinds of different reasons why Joseph divorced Mary. Yet soon people would find out about Mary's pregnancy. Mary being with child would become public knowledge. But how she got pregnant would be left up to people's imaginations. Some may have concluded that Joseph wanted a divorce because Mary was unfaithful to him. But others may have come to a different conclusion. Because Joseph didn't publicly accuse her of unfaithfulness, many would assume he was the father of her child. That would make Joseph look like the bad guy. Yet Joseph was determined that he was unwilling to make Mary into a public spectacle or to open her up to public disgrace and shame. He truly was a righteous man. He was willing to accept the stigma of being the man who made her pregnant. God, in his wisdom, allowed Joseph to consider these things and to come to a decision before revealing what had really happened to him. Our text speaks of how an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Please note how Joseph is addressed. He's addressed as the son of David, as someone who is of royal descent. That's really important in our text. For, for Jesus to fulfill his role as the Messiah, he needed to be one of Abraham's descendants. He needed to be of the lineage of David. The angel explains to Joseph, he should not be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Mary had not slept with some other guy as Joseph presumed. The child she was expecting was not an illegitimate son. Instead, the child Mary was expecting was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. It was through the mighty working of the Holy Spirit that God caused new life to be created in Mary's womb. By the power of God Most High, Jesus was conceived. God was his father, and Mary his mother. Humanly speaking, we would say it's impossible for a virgin to conceive and bear a son. Yet God worked this miracle. He created this wondrous work. He caused his son to be conceived in Mary's womb. The Lord makes it clear to Joseph who the baby in Mary's womb was. The angel said to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
The days in which Joseph and Mary lived were a dark period in Israel's history. They were under Roman rule. God had not revealed himself to his people for over 400 years. Yet there was a growing expectation that he would soon send the Messiah. The righteous in Israel lived with this hope and expectation. The fact that an angel appeared to Joseph was amazing. It showed the Lord still thought about that he cared for his people. The message the angel brought was good news of great joy. For in commanding Joseph to call the baby Jesus, it was clear God was sending the Messiah. The name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord saves. The fact that Joseph is told to name Mary's child Jesus shows that God was sending a savior into this world. Matthew goes one step further in identifying who this baby is. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's a quotation from Isaiah 7, verse 14. The central point that Matthew is making is that Jesus' birth is a fulfillment of Isaiah's Emmanuel promise. Emmanuel means God with us. With Jesus' birth, God would come to dwell among his people. Thus, contrary to what Joseph initially thought, the baby in Mary's womb was not an illegitimate child born out of wedlock because Mary was unfaithful. Instead, something glorious was happening in Jesus' birth. God was sending the promised Messiah. He was fulfilling his promises made to Abraham and to David. God was doing that in a wondrous way that no one ever expected. He was sending his son in human flesh. Beloved, let's ponder for a moment on the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus Christ. There's something truly amazing that happens in his birth. We know that when God created man, he made us in his image. We were like God in that he made us good and righteous and holy. And in that he gave us the task of ruling over creation in his place. Man held a highly exalted position. He was the crown of God's creation. And yet, there remained a great contrast between God and man. God is the creator. We are but creatures made from the dust of the earth. God is the potter. We are the clay. God has existed from eternity. But it was at the set time of his choosing that he first breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils. God is the sovereign king over all the earth. We are but subjects under his dominion. At the end of the day, God is God. And we are but people. 
Yet in the conception and birth of Christ, something wonderful happens. Something truly incredible. God the Son, the creator through whom the world was made, became a creature. The potter becomes clay. The sovereign ruler became a slave. God the Son, who is and remains true and eternal God, takes on a real human body and soul. God sent his very own Son into this world. Jesus became a living, breathing person, just like us. He came to save us from our sins. This is such a shocking truth. Many have been unable to accept it. The fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is denied by many. Yet, beloved, it is essential for our salvation. Jesus had to be a true man, to be able to pay for man's sins. Yet at the same time, he had to be true God in order to be able to bear the burden of God's wrath against all our sins. Thus, God provided a way out from our sins and misery by sending Jesus as the perfect Savior. Do you believe the gospel? Does it fill your heart with wonder and awe? Are you thankful for God's grace in Jesus Christ? Does that show in how you live your life? In our first point, we've seen that Jesus is God's actual son. In our second point, we'll see that he is Joseph's adopted son. Before an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, he had resolved not to bring Mary into public disgrace but instead to divorce her quietly. Yet after hearing the Lord's message, Joseph changes his mind. The angel commanded him to take Mary as his wife. He also told him to call the baby's name Jesus. Joseph obeys these commands. Our text says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Joseph and Mary were officially married. They began to live together. This would give some legitimacy to Jesus' birth. He would not be born to Mary out of wedlock. Yet people could still do the math and figure out that Mary had conceived a son before they were married. Most would conclude that Joseph was the father Yet our text specifies that this was not so. Joseph had no sexual union with Mary until after she had given birth to a son. Our text concludes by stating that Joseph called his name Jesus. This is a very important action. In Israel, it was the father's task to officially name his son. By naming Jesus, Joseph was formally accepting him as his son. Since we know that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, 
He was, in effect, adopting Jesus as his son. It's really important. For this gives Jesus an official place in the lineage of David. It's true that Mary was also of the house and lineage of David. Yet in Israel, a person's lineage was traced through their father. The fact that Joseph adopted Jesus to be his son meant that Jesus was officially the son of David. Please remember, beloved, that God had promised to send the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, from the house of Jacob. Already in Genesis 49, Jacob had blessed Judah and promised that his father's sons would bow down before him. He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This promise was fulfilled when God established David as king over Israel. It was to David that the Lord made glorious promises about the coming Messiah. He said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He added, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's in Jesus that these glorious promises would be fulfilled. For God sent him as the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. It's in Jesus, the Son of David, that God would save his people from their sins. Beloved, we may draw great comfort from our text. From it we learn the important doctrine that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. If Jesus had been born in the normal way, through the union of a man and woman, he too would have been conceived and born in sin. His supernatural birth allows him to come into this world as God's son, but also as a real and sinless human being. It's only in this way that Jesus could offer himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God to pay for our sins. There's something else that's supremely comforting in Jesus coming in human flesh. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus Christ, God came to dwell among his people. It's obvious from the type of life that Christ lived. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. They asked, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Jesus had compassion on the people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The people tasted that. It's what drew them to Christ more and more. In Jesus, they felt the presence of God. And that applies not just to the people of Jesus' day, 
but also to us. For Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to save us from our sins, to deliver us from the mastery of Satan. Jesus accomplished that by offering his life for ours. He walked the pathway of suffering to the cross, where he offered his body and blood for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. In Christ, we have been reconciled with God. In Christ, we may know God as our loving Father. We may be assured of his ongoing care over our lives. Yet this is not the end of the Emmanuel promise. In John 14, Jesus spoke to his disciples about leaving them because he was going to his father's house. He promised them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on the church. As believers in Christ, we have become temples of the Holy Spirit. Personally, the Spirit dwells in our hearts. God with us. Everywhere we go, in every circumstance of life, God is with us to lead and guide us in our service of Him, to comfort us when we're faced with troubles and sorrows, to help us when we're struggling with sin, directing us again and again to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we may find our life in Him. Beloved, there is one more way in which the Emmanuel promise still needs to be fulfilled. God has promised us He will be with us forevermore. In Psalm 16, David confesses that God will not abandon him to the grave, but that God would fill him with joy in His presence, with eternal pleasures at His right hand. In Job 19, Job confesses, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. God has promised to dwell with us on the new heavens and the new earth. He will dwell with us and be our God, and we shall be his people. All this has been made possible through the coming of Jesus Christ in human flesh. God sent his own Son into the world. He did so through a miraculous wonder. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He remained true and eternal God, while at the same time taking on a real human nature. He did so in order to serve as the promised Messiah. Praise God for sending Jesus into this world to save us from our sins. Praise God for granting us Emmanuel, God with us, 
now and forevermore. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from hymn 20.